Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Professor Kevin Vallier. He is philosophy professor at Bowling Green State University. His books include Liberal Politics and Public Faith and Must Politics Be War? Restoring Our Trust in the Open Society. His new book extends the, the trust and faith uh, issue. It is entitled Trust in a Polarized Age, out with Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Vallier. Thank you so much for having me. I asked you before we went on the air about when you started looking at the trust issue. You told me really 2015. Now, even since then, uh, boy, the trust level has really gone down. Why has it dropped so much? What are the, in, in the opening chapters, what are the main pieces of evidence that you draw for this, this trust issue? We should define some terms pretty quickly just to make sense of the phenomena. One thing I'm looking at is social trust. And social trust is trust in most people in your society. It's not trust in society as a whole. It's not trust in people that you know well. It, think about it in terms of the way that we trust people when we're driving. Right? We don't necessarily know who they are, but to get from point A to point B, we have to be able to depend on one another to have a basic degree of concern and respect for us as independent drivers. Whereas political trust is trust in institutions, uh, especially in the institutions in the federal government, like Congress and the presidency and the Supreme Court. The other issue that's kind of a thread throughout the book is political polarization. And that's a more familiar concept, but it's actually a couple of different concepts all bound up together. One is that we just disagree more about issues. That's issue-based polarization. And then there's affect-based polarization, which is just our emotional dislike or liking for members of another political group. There's also sorting, where instead of people changing their views, they just spend more time with the like-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those things you know, we talk about when we talk about polarization. In the book, I call it partisan diversions. And the book starts off with what I call the distrust divergence thesis. And this is the view that falling social and political trust and increasing political polarization are amplifying one another. Mm-hmm. So there's causal, there's a causal arrow from social trust to, I'll just focus on social trust, from social trust to polarization, and then one from polarization to social trust. And so now I can answer your question. Yes. And people will have the basic conceptual apparatus uh, to follow along. So one of the things I think that falling social trust does is it, it has a whole host of negative consequences, things like lower economic growth, more economic inequality, more corruption in the legal system. It just creates all kinds of difficulties. And one thing that there's recent evidence uh, to suggest is that people with low trust 
tend to listen to others less and develop conspiracy theories and extreme opinions. And so they'll oftentimes not interact with the center or people that might link them to people with very different ideas. So the thought is that social trust is facilitating, siloing a lack of contact with others. And in fact, contact with others, I think there's some evidence that it, it's, it's one of the ways that we get social trust in the first place, though we're not entirely sure about that. So what's going on is people are spending less time with people who are different from them. They're developing, they're losing cross-cutting identities that might lead them to interact with others. So social trust is just priming polarization. Indeed, it's important for another reason, which is that polarization itself isn't necessarily a problem if we trust each other a lot, right? We might say, okay, we're, you know, we're disagreeing with each other. We're coming up with some misunderstandings about people's motives. Let's get together and talk. Let's adopt a procedure to resolve our disputes. So social trust is making political polarization more poisonous. But I also think polarization is reducing social trust, and I've already said a little bit about why, and that's because of the siloing effect. People interacting with each other less often, people marrying uh, people with similar political views and values. And so people are interacting with each other less, and they're developing very deep partisan distrust. So in 2017, around 70% of Democrats said that people who voted for Trump can't be trusted. And the reverse was true. 70% of Republicans said people who voted for Hillary can't be trusted. So you're thinking now, oh, wow, can I trust most people? Well, not the Trump voters, and that was a lot of people. So, so this is the, the loop between polarization and distrust. Um, and it's the loop that I want to figure out how to break. When you have high social trust, does that imply people's conception or feeling of some underlying unity uh, that we're all together, we're all in this together, we're all Americans, or we're all we're we're all equal in the eyes of God? Something beneath politics, or even beneath civics, that that binds us all as one. Is that would you go that far, or maybe social trust can be a little? You don't need that so much. No, but it can help. So, for instance, my view is that, unfortunately, we don't have data from World War II and forward a couple of years after it ended, but it would be very interesting to look at. So what I think it makes the most sense is that U.S. social trust went up greatly during that period. We were already a very diverse country, but different classes and races and things were all forced to work together to defeat a common foe. But our country's institutions were not disrupted in any, anything like other institutions, whereas I think social trust has been rising in various countries in Europe, not all, particularly the ones who transitioned to democracy. But the main steady, many of the main steady democracies are either have uh, pretty good trust that's remaining stable, like the UK and Sweden, or Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands and Germany and Switzerland, although Switzerland didn't fight in the war. Um, all of their social trust levels uh, have been steadily or even rapidly increasing. Hmm. And I think that has to do with them having good institutions prior to a lot of these conflicts and a lot of the instability in German institutions creating a sense of broader instability in Germany and in German adjacent countries. It's certainly true in, in Eastern Germany, you know, the, the former East Germany. And here's why, you know, they were under communism. And one of the institutions of communist countries are secret police. By 1989, about one in 20 German, East Germans were members of the secret police. So if you're walking <laughs> around and one out of every 20 adults can ruin your life and you not know it, that's going to hurt your trust levels. Yeah. It's one reason why Germany's social trust hasn't increased as quickly 
as social trust in German-speaking or German-adjacent countries. Um, there's some countries where we don't have good measurements, like France and Austria, too, that would be interesting to see. So underlying unity in terms of institutional stability, I think, helps a lot. But underlying unity, say, in a loss, the loss of a war, um, that may not be, or, in, you know, a whole lot of instability, that might be bad. Wars do, t- I think, do tend to bind and lead us to trust governmental institutions as well. That's clear in the data for us in particular. We got a big boost in trust in government around uh, 9-11, around 2001, 2002, 2003. So I do think wars kind of bind us together. Uh, I do think people can be bound by ethnicity and they can be bound by common faith, but they can even be bound, and this is a very interesting finding, by having a kind of toothless constitutional monarch, because there's a high status, low partisan person that people could say, look, you know, we hate each other politically, but we all agree that the queen is, you know, is pretty good. So the idea is you have a a nonpartisan head of state. So one thing you really need is elites, many of which haven't taken sides politically. But basically all of our elites have done this. We know what side they're on. I I think, Kevin, that is a very far-ranging point to to have as you put it to have elites some elites that look nonpartisan is is crucial exactly huh yes i think that's important um you know the the only like tr- one of the only truly n- seemingly nonpartisan elites that we have and she's been getting a lot of attention lately is dolly parton and in the past you know you have people like mr rogers for instance people didn't know he was a presbyterian minister you didn't know his politics and there were also figures that had a uh, a sectarian, not in the bad sense, but had a particular goal, but seemed like they can get along with both sides and were respected by, by both yeah. sides, like Billy, Billy Graham. Graham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. The, that was what first yeah. occurred to me when you said that. Yeah, and in the past, we've had more of those figures, like people in, in the political parties that were maybe liberal Republicans or conservative Democrats. So the Democrats liked them because they were Democrats, and the conservatives liked them okay because they're conservatives. So, and you have a lot less of that now. So you can have like quasi-partisan people, but now with elites, you know, again, everyone's taken sides. We know where the universities stand. We know where Hollywood stands. We know increasingly now where Silicon Valley stands. So, you know, that's, I think, one of the difficulties that we have is everybody's getting drawn up into this. And secularization in the United States, which I think is exaggerated in many cases, but it's concentrated primarily among white male college educated Democrats um, who do seem to be uh, rapidly secularizing. Whereas, as I gather in Western Europe, secularization is more bipartisan. Um, That's been driving polarization, too, because people are starting to invest more themselves, their time and their identity in politics because they're losing that cross-cultural identity. Oh, well, I'm, you know, my grandmother called these uh, holy oncers, a Methodist. They go to church only on Easter. They're holy twicers. You know, it's just Easter and Christmas. At least if you kind of, even the holy oncers and holy twicers, um, at least had some nominal connection to a nonpartisan institution. It also didn't help that the liberal mainline denominations started taking so many political stands. My sense is that, you know, be, that these folks are adopting these deep set political values. And instead of they don't have cross cutting identities anymore. Um, people on the right often do. But in many cases, I feel like that's being corrupted uh, in certain respects. So but I mean, I think the problem with being obsessed you know, truly obsessed with politics versus basically everything else in their lives is, is a really big problem on among left uh, elites. It is. Uh, 
You and others whom you quote say that most of the divergence of the political parties, the increasing polarization there in recent times, is not due to, quote, rational disagreement, but to affect formation. What do you mean by that? Issue-based polarization would, you know, of this kind would be to say, oh, look, we disagree about healthcare policy. We disagree more than we did before, um, but we're not mad at each other about it. We just have different views, right? It's perfectly possible for you to say, oh, wow, this person thinks about the world really differently for me. But I can still count on them to do sort of the basic right thing. I don't hate them. I like them fine, right? But affect-based polarization is, is, you know, it's almost often measured with surveys on kind of thermometers, like, you know, how how much do you dislike or hate or something like that, the other group? So affect is when we're, we get kind of tribalized and we think the members of the other tribe have various kinds of moral vices, right? That they're, they're bigots or that they're arrogant, right? I mean, those are the things that the left says the right is ignorant and bigoted. The uh, left says the right is, you know, condescending and authoritarian, you know, controlling and so you get these strong emotional reactions, negative ones, to the other party. And more of what we've seen is affect-based polarization among most Americans. Luckily, we already have a, we still have a lot of people that aren't politically involved because in a polarized environment, not being involved isn't the worst thing ever. We've got both among elites, but the effect of polarization is worse. And when you put Democrats and Republicans together in like a focus group, um, they'll oftentimes be surprised at the level of the, 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 the they can come together like that. Democrats learn that most Republicans are fine with protections, want protections for people, health care protections for people with pre-existing conditions, uh, for instance. So, you know, people come to find that, you know, well, not all Republicans are rich, you know, or something along those lines or that Democrats, you know, are patriotic or that they love their country or that they value family, you know, just all these kinds of different misconceptions that come from a lack of contact. So that's the difference. Effective polarization is when you have a negative emotional response to members of another group, whereas rational disagreement is just, okay, now we're further apart on this issue. Okay, but I don't hate you. You have a, a strong phrase at one point where you refer to the illusion of culpable dissent. What is that? This is what happens when we've got a lot of effective polarization where you think the fact that others disagree with you is their fault. So um, it's culpable dissent because the other person disagrees because, but they know better than to disagree. Either they're, they're stupid and should have gathered the relevant information, like, you know, or, or they're just bad people, just plain old, you know, awful. It's an illusion, I think, because we overestimate our ability to determine why others believe what they believe. I mean, I find it very difficult to know why I believe what I believe. We get pretty darn sure that we know that we're sure the only way that someone could vote for Trump is that they're racist. That's, there are millions of Democrats who believe that. They're, they're, they're totally sure about the internal mental states and mental life of millions of people that they've never met and will deliberately not meet. And so when I call them an illusion, I mean precisely that. Is they, they just say, well, Trump voters are racist, and I know that, and that's it. So, um, or that, you know, Christians, well, all the, well, interestingly enough, uh, 10 years ago, there was a lot more stuff about Christians being stupid and irrational, whereas the, the new atheists have kind of collapsed as a movement for interesting reasons. But, you know, that you would hear that then. And, but then someone would meet a reflective Christian, like when I was a new atheist or whatever in the early 2000s, they hadn't gotten so, so popular just yet. 
Um, when I met intellectual reflective Christians, I was completely blown away. Like I was utterly stunned and surprised. I thought it was, um, I thought it was impossible. And in fact, those people, you know, played a role in my conversion to Christianity because I had left Christianity because I thought I had no reason to believe it. You know, so there's a lot of times misunderstandings arise because you just don't even understand how those could think what they think. And people would say, how could anyone believe in God? Isn't that just like believing in a flying spaghetti monster? Or, you know, or in Bertrand Russell's case, the sort of teapot orbiting the earth. And then you say, oh, oh, actually, no, there's like this tradition of argumentation for God's existence. Those arguments kind of fell on hard times for a couple of uh, decades. But by and large, the history of philosophy is people rationally believing in deities, at least one. Um, you go from Plato, and it stretches all the way down, even into the early moderns, like Descartes. Then with Hume, you get the first kind of, you know, for real philosophical atheist. Um, but then, you know, there's all these idealists that believe there's some kind of deity. And there's, there's plenty of people like Paley, who comes after Hume, that's a theist. So theism, theistic philosophy is just, you know, doing real well. But, you know, from about 19... Or 1850 to 1950, things got on harder times because of utilitarian, secular utilitarianism and Marxism. And then, you know, the side of Christian philosophers got started in the 70s. People started writing about a lot of these arguments again. And now intellectually, I think we've, you know, the church is mostly recovered, um, but it's not widely known. So, you know, what, so what'll happen is, you know, atheists like me will go to school at Washington University in St. Louis and then down the road at St. Louis University with people, philo extraordinary philosophers like Eleanor Stump. And then you meet those grad students and you think, oh, wow, I had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. There were all of these arguments, all these ways of thinking about the world, and it made no sense to me at all. I was woefully, completely ignorant. And I think that's what happens in societies where people are increasingly uh, polarized. I just, but, you know, some people are willing to actually meet people on the other side. And get to know them and reduce that effective uh, polarization. My hostility towards evangelical Christians that I had developed growing up in South Alabama evaporated in a day or two. Hmm. I'm kind of unusual in that regard, I think. But the encounter with someone else's ideas is the way we overcome the illusion of culpable descent. But it's very, very easy to form that illusion when you don't interact with people that are different from you because you think you can guess. Like, like basically, you treat other people's you know, neurological structure is radically simpler than your own, right? Like, you know that you believe things for, like, very complicated reasons, that you're sensitive to lots of factors, that your life experience has taught you this, that, or the other thing. But you don't extend that to people. You know, like, you don't extend that to Trump voters. You say, look, this is Trump. Trump is racist. People know that he's racist, and the only reason they would vote because they're racist. Um, so that's why it's an illusion. Um, so, and that's what the three terms mean, descent, culpability, and illusion. I can imagine a, a young person who, who is uh, fired with ideas of social justice, say, saying, well, why should I trust someone who believes in a destructive outlook? I mean, they're bad. They're doing bad things. But, but I guess that, that goes along with the, the overconfidence in your own, in your own motives and your own, your own understanding. Uh, of things, so a, a little so trust involves a little bit of self skepticism. Is that is that part of the point? I think I think so, but I think the biggest part is the modes or forms of life, the folk ways that we have to convince others that we're trustworthy, even when our values differ. 
So just to give a really simple example, you know, when you're just to go back to the traffic case where people are following the rules and you think, okay, but most people here are good drivers. Another thing that's a common judge is, is if your law enforcement uh, system is seen as non-corrupt and as effective at reducing crime. So oftentimes people take law enforcement to be like particularly exemplary community members. So even if the police seem to be the judges are fair and even handed and the police don't take bribes and they're not corrupt, then you could say, okay, this is a community that actually values everybody, that supports people being protected, that tries to avoid crime. There aren't that many criminals, not that many people seem to want to break the rules. So there's, you know, or in the economic system, right? You don't necessarily know who you buy food from or anything about the supply chain, right? But you can trust people like the cashier, even though you have no idea who the cashier is, because, you know, norms in the market create these incentives for people to serve one another. So there's lots of ways that we can generate trust short of coming to agree on fundamental values. That's one of the beauties of open societies is that they allow for the formation of systems of rules and, and, uh, and the rule of law where people of diverse perspectives can say, look, we've got a common set of rules. People follow the common set of rules. I can depend on others to follow those rules, probably not just for self-interested reasons, but because they have some kind of concern for me or respect for me as a fellow citizen. So that, that's really what's a, part of what's essential. You could point to common values. You could point to common worldview. But at the very least, if you can point to common folkways and norms, you can get a lot of trust without a lot of agreement on fundamentals, I think. What does the actual research say about trust and racial ethnic diversity? It's a lot more complicated than you would think. So a lot of people think, oh, have a lot of ethnic diversity, um, you're going to have lower trust. Well, it turns out that people have done hundreds of studies on this and many meta-analyses as well. And it turns out that whether ethnic diversity reduces social trust has to do with geographical location and the arena in which the diversity occurs. So, for instance, it looks like in the U.S. it's primarily residential diversity. So, like, if you work with people of different ethnicities, it doesn't reduce your social trust. But if you grow up and you're Italian and the Irish are down the block and you don't really interact with them, you know, or the situations where you have a lot of, of conflict between conservative Jews and black Americans in New York City, um, where there's local segregation. So, for instance, if you're ethnically diverse and people on the other side of the country are very ethnically different from you, that probably doesn't reduce social trust very much at all. And if you're constantly interacting with people of different ethnicities and races, that doesn't really hurt social trust either. Workplace diversity doesn't seem to hurt social trust. But local segregation, that seems to make difference really salient and potentially really threatening. Um, so most of the studies of ethnic diversity and social trust in the U.S. have find no effect or a small negative effect. And it looks like it's primarily because of the ethnic diversity of local segregation when it's really, really salient due to visual markers, clothing, skin color, uh, and also language, linguistic differences. One section uh, is entitled learning to trust. How do we convert an individual or a group from distrustful to trustful? That section I starred because it's highly speculative and it was something I wanted philosophers to read, but I'm not as confident in it. And so I didn't make the theory of, of trust learning central to the book. I just assumed, well, we have learned it. So what do we, what do we know? Um, but developing the theory of trust formation is one of my next projects. Um, because I think it's going to have 
psychological dimensions, and it's going to have like economic and sociological dimensions as well. And political trust looks like it's learned from just forming beliefs about whether institutions are, are meeting expectations or not. So that's not that mysterious. But what is mysterious about social trust is, first of all, it's like a lot of judgments that you have an impressionable period, but then you kind of lock in your views like about religion or politics or philosophy of like kind of 15 to 25, let's say, ages 15, 25. Social trust judgments do seem to harden as you get older. So you have a kind of vulnerable period, but actually you don't change your trust in most people that much later in life, uh, if at all, which is not true of political trust. So one thing we know about social trust judgments, they tend to be performed early in life. It does seem to be a, a little bit of a heritable element because the big five personality traits do correlate with people's trustingness. Think if you're especially high in neuroticism, for instance, that you'll be lower trust. So there is that, that element, um, except that you know societies that are ethnically similar can have big changes in social trust levels. It doesn't happen all that much. But for instance, Danish trust has gone up about 30 points in the last 30 or 40 years in a 100-point scale. And, you know, they didn't change their genes or anything like that. So if there, there probably is a big five effect, but it's relatively small. It looks like there's some kind of cultural transmission mechanism that allows social trust to be very stable in most countries. And one of the going hypotheses is that social trust is transmitted to children watching how their family members interact with strangers. Hmm. So you, it looks like you learn whether to trust others from your parents. Another thing that I've been thinking about, particularly my wife and I've been talking about, she's a therapist that works with teenagers, and they're kind of at the prime age for trust judgment formation, is an unsafe un upbringing. So, you know, if you can't even trust your parents not to harm you, um, that very well may make it harder for you to trust anyone. And I think, you know, that's very intuitive, right? Like we understand like, oh, it's so, you know, it's hard for me to trust people because my, my father was, was, was cruel to me or my uncle did this or that to me um, and I wasn't protected. So we're wanting to do some work on trauma and trust judgments, family trauma. So, you know, we don't know. We don't know where social trust ultimately comes from. We don't know how it evolved because for most of human history, we've lived in tribes. We could trust clans. We were in villages or we could trust 150 other people. Um, but then at some point we developed the ability to trust in much larger social networks. I think part of the story is the development of Christianity and Islam. Because in Christianity and Islam, you have a deity that cares a great deal about moral behavior. And so you know if people are members of that religion that you can count on them because they're, they have these special moral motivations. Negative ones maybe like fear of punishment, but positive ones, sort of wanting to be rightly related to God. And so if you're a Roman pagan, the fact that you put incense on the altar to Caesar doesn't sort of tell you very much about whether the person is moral or not, right? Um, but if you're a Christian willing to go to your death and you're, sit, you know, you're a pagan, you're sitting in the Colosseum, there's a, there are Christians in there, you know it's because of their faith, you've heard that they're kind, um, and then lo and behold, they're being torn apart by lions. And I think that's a very, very powerful signal. So the idea is that deeply religious people can convey trustworthiness to people that they don't know because of the kind of signaling they're able to credibly engage in, um, like being willing to lay down their lives for their faith. So I think, and also in the, the East, you have karmic religions, which, which can play a similar role um, in motivating moral behavior. So I think religion plays, has played a role, a lot of different roles in enabling larger scale social networks to form.
but also to make it easier for us to to trust to trust each other. Um, but you know, there's a lot we don't know still. The book is Trust in a Polarized Age. Professor Vallier, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.